This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Let, I'm going to move through uh, four other uh, names here, and we'll try to move through them a little more uh, quickly just because I want to get to some other things as well. But the next name probably is going to put the brakes on us for here for a while. The next name is Karl Marx. Well, you know, I don't know how long we have to spend on Karl <laughs> Marx. I, I think you can summarize the problem in Marx this way, that Marx took the materialism that was beginning to emerge in Adam Smith and isolated it from the moral concerns that still had a strong presence in Smith. Smith is concerned about justice. Smith is concerned about treating people, you know, fairly. Uh, Marx just isn't. Uh, all Marx wants to know is how can we get the most beads of sweat going? Uh, and, and so Marx's economics is really based on a, a, re, a reductio ad absurdum of this materialistic view of the economy, that the economy is nothing but money and stuff moving around. So it's, uh, it's dualism on steroids. Yes, I think that's exactly right. <laughs> hmm. um, and in fact, it's, it's, it's dualism, and then it just denies the spiritual realm. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence that Marx is an atheist. Mm -hmm. uh, Marx, Marxist economics, or Marx's economics, uh, are, are really just what you get if you think that human beings are sacks of meat that, that, that just happen to have accidentally gained the ability to move around and think. Uh, but if, if you think there's no spiritual dimension to the universe, uh, something like Marx's economics is ultimately what you're going to get. Now, it, it, was Marx concerned about the class dimensions of economics very much, or was that, uh, or did he was he concerned about class simply because it made for a, an inefficiency in the economy? Um, Marx was definitely uh, concerned about class distinctions at a core level because he believed that uh, because, he, because he thought of everything in terms of money and stuff, he believed that it was necessary that different cl economic classes would have to be in competition with each other. Uh, so there's a, there's a capital class and a labor class, and Marx believes they always must be in competition, that whatever benefits capital hurts labor, whatever benefits labor hurts capital. Uh, there's no such thing as productive cooperation. Uh, and if you believe there's nothing but money and stuff, that makes sense. Uh, because every dollar you have is a dollar I don't have. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the idea that human beings can be creative and work together in ways that benefit one another just doesn't make sense in a, in a sort of unspiritual universe. Hmm. Now the next name, I'm going to move on, the next name is Keynes. What's, how does he fit into this storyline? Well, Keynes came along in the early 20th century at a time when the discipline of economics uh, was very eager to separate itself from its moral uh, uh, foundations. Uh, and not that economics was not alone in that regard. All the social sciences were essentially looking around for a way they could do uh, their, their research and, and activity without any moral presuppositions. They wanted a morally neutral, merely descriptive science. 
And there have been a bunch of economists talking about how to do this, but nobody really had a, 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 a powerful vision for how to do it. Keynes came along and essentially uh, provided a, a, what was to most people in the economics field a, uh, a very powerful vision of how we can do economics in a way that is merely descriptive of the world and is, does not have moral presuppositions. Uh, or so he claimed. Now, you know, as, as Christians, I think we know that uh, there, there's no such thing as any activity that doesn't have uh, moral presuppositions. Uh, the, the whole idea of moral neutrality is a, is a mythology. But Keynes's whole system is built on this, and the core commitment of Keynes's economics uh, was to reorient economic analysis away from production to consumption that the earlier uh, approach to economics had said the purpose of the economy is to produce things that people want and need. Uh, uh, the, the purpose of economic activity is to produce the goods and services uh, that human beings want and need. Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a focus on production as the end point or, or, or purpose of economic activity. For Keynes, very, very strongly, the end point is consumption rather than production. Uh, and his argument was, what's the point of producing it if we're not going to consume it? Uh, and therefore, consumption is what we want. And we want to maximize consumption. Uh, so so you have the economy you want, not when you are producing the most goods and services, uh, uh, and, and certainly not mo when you're producing the most good or worthy or desirable goods and services, but rather when you are satisfying people's desires, when people are, are using, consuming the stuff that's being made. So there's a focus on gratifying your desires, uh, pleasing your desires, because that's what consumption ultimately is uh, in, this, in this conception. When you use economic stuff, you do it in order to satisfy some desire that you have. So you're generating, uh, you're generating markets as opposed to thinking about how you produce in a way that meets, that meets a need. Yes, stimulating demand is a sort of talismanic phrase that emerges in, in, the, in the work of Keynes and in, the, in the, those that followed him, uh, that, that we really want to uh, prompt people to want stuff so that we can then satisfy those desires. Uh, uh, there, there's, a, there's a focus on uh, uh, teaching people to want more so that you can give them more because the assumption is people want more, they'll spend more to get what they want, and that's what keeps the economy going in this view. Hmm. Okay, well, the next name is Friedman, Milton Friedman. What, what does he add to the equation? Well, uh, Milton Friedman was a, uh, a libertarian economist who emerged in the 20th century as uh, the key challenger to Keynesian economics. And what I really want to focus on in the, in the paper uh, that we're reviewing is that Friedman bought into uh, much of Keynes's uh, uh, reorientation of the economic discipline away from moral foundations and particularly uh, accepted and championed the view that the purpose of economic activity is to satisfy our desires. So there is a utilitarian ethic that is introduced by Keynes and is uh, uh, totally accepted by Friedman, such that the debate between left and right in our economic discourse takes place within a world that is defined largely by this utilitarian ethic. Uh, so Friedman uh, criticized many of Keynes's particular policies for stimulating demand and 
managing the economy. And Friedman, uh, as a libertarian, uh, wanted to minimize government uh, activity. Uh, but but Friedman did that in the name of. Uh, this utilitarian ethic. He did it in the name of satisfying the most desires of the most people. Uh, and he uh, particularly subscribed to the view that we should have no uh, preference between satisfying a desire that is morally good or morally bad. Because, of course, what you think is morally bad, the, you know, the person who's doing it thinks is morally good, presumably. Uh, so there's a, a, what, what happens in the Keynes versus Friedman debate uh, is uh, a, a, a dialogue between left and right where one side wants more government activity and one side wants less government activity, but both of them are, are uh, operating within this utilitarian ethic that says the purpose of economic activity is to gratify desires. It's to generate more, more economic activity, basically. It is, so Keynes represents, I take it, the, the more governmental oversight and Friedman's the more uh, hands-off. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Uh, Keynes's view is sometimes described as interventionist, and that's to distinguish it from a more uh, a Marxist view that really wants government ownership and, and, and a, a direct control in, uh, of, the, of the economy. Uh, Keynes's view is that you should have private property and markets where people buy and sell, but then government should step in on a regular basis to intervene in the operation of those, uh, uh, those systems in order to produce the, the outcomes that, that Keynesian economics favors. Uh, Friedman largely uh, advanced his critique not by challenging the idea uh, that those goals should be accomplished, the, the sort of the goals of gratifying the most desires of the most people, but rather by showing that government intervention is ineffective. Uh, he argued that these interventions that the Keynesians uh, support actually do not accomplish the goal uh, that, that Keynes set for them. Uh, and that if you, if you uh, simply uh, allow people to buy and sell on their own, uh, they'll they'll find the way to maximize their uh, the gratification of their desires on their own. Now, if I'm reading between the lines, right, and I'm hearing you, and, and I'm not an econo economist, so I may not be hearing you right. What I'm hearing is, is that the two predominant ways in which we tend to think about our our economy in the public square, neither of them have a a deeply rooted moral uh, component to them. Is that is am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely. Uh, and I think the, the metaphysics and ethics of Keynesian and, and, and neoclassical or Friedman, Milton Friedman's economists, economics is called neoclassical sometimes, or the Chicago School. Uh, I would say Keynesian economics and neoclassical economics are both uh, operating out of the same metaphysic and the same sort of utilitarian ethical philosophy. Okay. Now, this brings us last to the Austrian school, which sounds rather exotic coming from Europe. So, uh, so what is the Austrian school? This is the last, this is the last part of our history lesson, everybody. The, uh, the Austrians are the third major school of economics, and uh, they do uh, have a somewhat more robust metaphysical and ethical uh, component. Uh, they argue that all human activity is purposive. Uh, that people have purposes for their activities and that thus uh, we need to understand economics not in terms of the movement of money and stuff 
uh, primarily, but rather primarily in terms of people making choices in order to accomplish their goals. Uh, and, and essentially, uh, uh, Austrian economics also uh, has a critique of government uh, intervention in the economy, not primarily on an effectiveness uh, view, but primarily because uh, they, they have their, their view is that that takes away people's uh, freedom to, to uh, pursue their own ends. Uh, that essentially there's an ins the, the individual becomes used, sort of controlled and used. Uh, by, a, by a power that doesn't share his, his, his purposes. Now, I think that uh, Austrian economics is a is somewhat better uh, than the other two schools because it is looking at a, a it has a, an avowed moral framework for understanding human action uh, and it goes beyond utilitarianism. But I still think we have a long way to go and that Christian voices have got to come in and critique all three of these schools uh, and return us, I think, to a much more robust understanding of the moral, spiritual, and cultural bases of economic activity. And look, I think that uh, uh, economic growth is a great thing. I think it's something that the, the church should be in favor of. Uh, I think that we do need limits on political authority. Uh, but I think that those have to be pieces of a larger whole uh, that, that we are still, I think, struggling to, uh, uh, struggling to articulate in a way that has an impact in the public culture. Now, you know, someone might ask, why go through this long history? Well, I think part of the rationale is to help us see that a lot of our public dialogue about how we build our, our economic policy and the way we think about economics, the way not only we think individually about our money but collectively as a society about our money, uh, may actually have very little to do with, with uh, thinking through the values that go into that process that it's a largely it's largely become no matter which side you fall a, a, a very utilitarian kind of debate and discussion uh, which means that it that it that the dualism has fed um, a debate which at its end still doesn't get us to the large moral questions that we should be asking about the function of work and money if I summarized your overall thesis well Yes, I'd say uh, that's that's definitely uh, what I that's definitely what I'm saying. I think that it is uh, a great service that Christians can perform in the coming generation to our culture uh, to help our culture uh, grapple with this enormous issue and understand that the the various uh, schemes and gimmicks that we keep trying to fix our economic problems are failing not because we have the wrong people in charge in Washington but because we have the wrong people on the throne in our hearts uh, and we've got to we've got to get the right people on the th on the throne in the throne room of our hearts uh, and and that's that's the fundamental problem uh, we're dealing with that what we want is money and stuff uh, rather than uh, productive work that serves human needs and makes the world a better place. And if we, if we, fo if we can get our culture to focus on uh, serving human needs and making the world a better place in our economic work uh, and to respect business as a place where that happens uh, and, and sort of treat business as a place where that happens, uh, then I think we're going to see a lot of our economic problems uh, uh, turning around uh, without the, you know, uh, regardless of, of what else we do. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, finding a faith strong enough to hold us. 
written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So you, part of the point that you're making now, and when we're shifting here, and I'm trying to, to, to help us get there, and that is, um, is that what we're really talking about is thinking through why do people work, why, what should business be about, um, and how do people and business working together make for a, a better uh, and more uh, effective society that promotes what what oftentimes the fra- you hear the phrase human flourishing? Am I am I again going down the right track here? Absolutely. What is uh, what is the contribution that work makes to human flourishing? What is the contribution that business as an intermediate? Uh, uh, institution uh, between the individual and society. Uh, what, what is the contribution business makes to human flourishing, and what is the contribution economic systems themselves make to human flourishing? Uh, that's the that's the question I think we're asking. Now, I will tell you that when I read this chapter and was reading through it, there was a discussion along with this. I, and obviously, now we're injecting the idea of religion and religious values and the value of human worth and service and those kinds of ideas as, a, as the moral components that contribute to this development of this theology. But the, the curveball that I saw in the chapter was the injection of the concept of religious freedom. And uh, I have to tell you that when I uh, approached the chapter coming into it, that was a topic I hadn't anticipated being in the chapter. I hadn't thought about about what is how does religion and religious freedom play into all this, and and uh, what does what is it about an enterprise society and a freedom to create free from persecution on the one side or state sponsorship of the church on the other, how, do, how does that play into this conversation as we're thinking about the reflecting on the moral dimension of our work? Well, I think uh, this, this goes back a little bit to the history uh, that uh, one of the most important developments in human history is the emergence of religious freedom in the modern world. Uh, and I think religious freedom is a phenomenal blessing for all kinds of reasons, and we could go on, you know, I could give you weeks and weeks of discussion why I love religious freedom. But I think uh, a challenge that it creates, uh, and, and we can never keep a blessing unless we can understand the challenge it creates. Uh, uh, because all blessings create challenges for us, especially in a fallen world. The challenge that religious freedom creates is public institutions cannot give a complete metaphysical and spiritual account of why they exist. Uh, uh, Because if you gave a complete metaphysical and spiritual account of why this institution exists, uh, then that institution would not not be uh, able to protect religious freedom for those who disagree with some aspect of its metaphysics or its spirituality or its theology. Hmm. Uh, So government, you know, the U.S. government can, can put in God we trust on the coins, and I'm, you know, I'm all for that. I'm not against that. And I don't think that violates religious freedom. But what do we mean by God? What do we mean by in God we trust? Well, if you gave a complete answer to that question, you'd have no space left for religious freedom. Uh, so you need some ambiguity. 
you, in order to maintain religious freedom, uh, you've, you've got to have uh, some ambiguity in the public square. Uh, and that, that creates a, a realm of contested meaning where people will uh, uh, argue with each other over what these things mean and have different viewpoints about it. Uh, and um, the danger that creates is that public institutions and systems can drift from their moral purpose. That uh, people can get the idea that, well, you know, everything moral and spiritual is up for grabs, right? Because it's all contested, right? Maybe I think that uh, serving human needs is more important than accumulating money and stuff. Uh, but you know, you might have a uh, uh, you might have a sort of Anne Randian philosophy that says, no, every everyone has a moral responsibility to be selfish. Uh, so who's to say that one is better than another, and who's to say uh, that that the you know this view should prevail uh, in in public culture? And the the fact is, we need some shared moral commitments. We need some shared commitments that public institutions do in fact uh, represent and affirm, even if we cannot give a complete account of them. Uh, and and the, the the problem we're encountering in the economic realm, and I would argue in many other realms of culture as well. Uh, is that we've lost the ability to articulate the moral purpose uh, of work, of economic activity, of businesses, and of the system itself uh, in a way that represents a consensus value of society. Uh, that we need to have a moral consensus in society that transcends our divisions, at least uh, transcends our major divisions. You're never going to get everybody on board, uh, but you've got to be able. You've got to be able to have some coherence as a culture. Uh, and our our uh, our nation of religious freedom, and, and you, you referred to the phrase enterprise society. I like to use this this phrase enterprise society uh, to describe America and the kind of culture that it represents, where people are free to uh, invent and create and build uh, and to offer their ideas in the public square and to offer their work and their businesses in the public square uh, in ways that make sense to them. Uh, that that enterprise society is an incredibly precious thing because it's a it, it's just part and parcel of religious freedom. Uh, but in order to in order to keep society together in that context, we've got to have some kind of coherence. Uh, we have to have some kind of integrity. And I think the way you do that is not by uh, charging into the political system and imposing it through some uh, political movement. I think the way you, you rebuild or create that integrity is by going into all areas of public life, uh, like business, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, like, like all the things you do in your, in your neighborhood, uh, and, and offer our view of things to our culture in a way that's contextualized and, and winsome, and that speaks, again, to the spiritual longings of people around us. So, so part of the point that I think you're making here is, is that we could end up in a world where we have a battle between, if I can say it this way, producers and consumers. Um, we could think about it that way with no moral base between it. They just duke it out for the power and, and control, uh, which is – uh, if I'm hearing again between the lines, is sort of what I'm hearing you say our economic theories tend to, to push us towards. Um, or, or we can begin to ask the questions, what is it that business should be doing for people and for society? And when we ask that additional question on top of it, we reframe the economic discussion, and it's no longer producers versus consumers. Uh, versus consumers, it's, it's a different question and it's a different set of answers. Uh, I, I think that's a good summary. I guess the way I would put it is this, uh, that uh, rather than divide into a, a uh, sort of 
productive upper class uh, that has jobs and gets married and goes to church and uh, participates in civil society, and then a, uh, a lower class that is disconnected from all those institutions. Uh, and, and if you're following the data, I don't know if you saw the Pew Research data that came out uh, just uh, two weeks ago, uh, that division is, is uh, unfortunately beginning to it's form. Growing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think um, uh, th that's just a, that's just deadly territory. And again, ultimately, the the, the classes will understand one another as competing, mm -hmm. unless we have something that that is a win, you know, that, that that brings people together and says we can all win together. Mm -hmm. We can all win together. And I think the key to all winning together is to respect the dignity of all people. And as a result of respecting the dignity of all people, say every human being can be a net producer uh, with those very rare exceptions of people who cannot work. And we, you know, we're all for being generous uh, and, and supporting those people. But everyone who, who has basic human functioning is able to be a net producer. Uh, and we can, we can be a society of producers where everyone is a producer. And obviously, we're also all consuming. <clears throat> but if we produce more than we consume, then everyone is a net producer. And then we're all on the same team. And it doesn't matter if your net production is relatively small and my net production is relatively large or vice versa. Uh, the dignity of being a human being is expressed by the fact that all of us are contributing uh, to the common good. And there's a quality of life that's taking place that allows people all across the spectrum to, to participate in it. There's one other element that we haven't put on the table that's important to this conversation, and that is particularly if you see it as a competition between competing classes or something like that, sometimes the view exists, well, there's only so much production available. And so not only if I have the dollar, you don't, but there are only so many dollars around. So the more dollars I have, not only the less that you have, but the less you have even potential access to. And one of the things about economics that's important, that's particularly been true of the modern of modern economies, is is that the amount of stuff that gets produced is not static. It it grows and and it can expand, which means that there is more available for more people. Um, uh, th that adds to this equation a whole other dimension of complexity, doesn't it? Yes, and I think it's essential to affirm the goodness of economic growth if we are going to build this cultural uh, uh, reconciliation that says we can all win together. Mm -hmm. uh, because if we believe that uh, economic growth is bad, uh, or, or that economic growth can't either can't or shouldn't happen, uh, then we cannot create an environment where we all win together. Uh, the, the basic fact uh, about human beings economically is that they are creative. Uh, that we're made in the image of a creating God, and we ourselves are creative, N you know, not obviously in the same way as God, uh, but in a way that is like uh, God's creativity. And if human beings are creative, then the economy can and should grow, uh, because we don't just move stuff around. Uh, we're, we're adding value, we're producing value, uh, and when we produce value for other people, when we create value through our work, uh, uh, the, the economy can grow. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, in the Christian world, uh, there, there are ideologies circulating that basically says, well, economic growth only comes from this uh, uh, consumerist uh, whipping up of desires. So economic growth is bad. And I think we need to identify the wrong turn that we took in the 20th century with people like Keynes and Friedman and say, no, you know, in spite of what they claimed, 
Uh, economic growth does not come from whipping up people's desires uh, and teaching them a consumeristic view of human life uh, so that we can affirm economic growth that comes from ethical wealth creation uh, while not uh, signing on to a selfish view of human life. So we're we're about out of time for for this go around, but of course we're in the pursuit we're in the process of pursuing a, a document that is that is developing this argument uh, kind of a step at a time. So here, so I kind of feel like I'm in a cliffhanger mode right now. If, if this were a television show, so let me try and pull this together. Uh, what we've done today and and try and say it this way: as we as we look at the history of economics and we think about the history of economics, economics in some degree has kind of lost its way, um, that it started off as a, having a moral base and asking moral philosophical questions. It developed into its own discipline. It became very utilitarian in the way that it's going about things. There now has been the beginning of an injection back to the moral question to pull us kind of back to ask why we do what we do, not just that we do it and how well do we do it and how much can we produce. Um, and in the midst of that, certain values are, are, are seem to be uh, in play. One is um, and we haven't talked too much about this, but I think it's assumed in some of what we said, the avoiding of selfishness, that we don't engage in the economy just simply to satisfy our own desires or simply for selfish reasons, that there is a desire to pursue a citizenship that is virtuous, that seeks to contribute to society and to uh, produce uh, an environment that leads to human flourishing and that represents good stewardship of the creation that God created us to manage and be stewards over, and hopefully this leads to better models of community and better models of conversation about how we do our work in our theology. And so that's what you're, you're kind of encouraging us to think about as Christians. Is that fair? Yeah, amen to all that. Okay. Well, what we're doing, we're, like, we're, we're in suspended animation now. This is uh, this is part three of a six-part series, and we've kind of taken you right to the edge uh, with this one in terms of walking through uh, what a theology of economics looks like and how we think about our money in a collective scale. And we've probably challenged the listeners at two levels that I just want to reinforce as we close, and it's this. The first is that oftentimes we think about when we think about economics we think about our own personal economics we think about how money relates to me as an individual and this conversation that we're having is a collective discussion it's it's about corporate economics it's about how how all of us when we handle our money impact one another by how we do it and how we view it so i think that's first and the second point that i want to make is that cuts against the grain because we have generally been taught, particularly in America, to think about ourselves as individual activists, if I can say it that way, people who assess and do what we do because of what it means for me or for my family uh, or maybe even my community. But we don't think more globally about how how we, you kind of put the whole package together. So we've we've. Uh, We've challenged people today, I think, to think at a, at a more uh, global level about why they do what they do and how their piece fits into the, into the whole of it, right? 
Is that fair? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Well, you've uh, got me excited to do the next step of the process. Well, the I, I have a feeling that this is a little bit of a cliffhanger at this point where we've left it, but this is where we've got to leave it for today. We'll be back with you shortly. I guess the thing to say is stay tuned. There's more to come. Same time, same station. I just don't know exactly what time. Uh, but down the road, we'll be coming with parts four, five, and six that'll kind of hopefully uh, wrap around what we've discussed today and give some help and direction in thinking about it. I want to thank you. Uh, Greg, for being with us on the po- on the table podcast today. And, thank you for having me. And then I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the table podcast where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to the table podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.